0: And if you have a Bible, I invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, whereas we're going to continue on this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. If you do not know me, you've deduced so far that I am not Marcus and I am not KCC's. Uh, my name is Matthew Glaze. I'm one of the members here along with my wife, Victoria. And it is an honor and a joy to stand before you this morning and to uh, dive into the Word of the Lord with you today. Good to have you up there. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. So we are in Matthew chapter 5, and as you're turning there, I just want to kind of set the stage for you a little bit this morning of where we're going. Uh, my wife and I are relatively new homeowners. I say relatively new. We purchased a home in September of 2020. I know, a great time to buy a house. And the home we purchased was in this beautiful neighborhood, really friendly people. That's really what kind of sold us on the place. I'll tell you, the house did not sell us on the place. The house was built in the 70s or 80s, and it has stayed in the 70s or 80s for decades now. And so we've been working to kind of pull it into this century as far as style goes. And so, as we have been hard at work on that, one of the things we've been doing recently is working in our backyard and trying to turn really a paradise of weeds and moles into something a little more enjoyable. And our most recent project involved me trying to take down a tree in our backyard. Now something you need to know about our house is that our previous owner, she had a green thumb or at least aspirations of a green thumb because they're just plants. Everywhere at this house and none of them have survived since she has been there And so it's been a real joy to try to remove all of that Now something you need to know about me two things really one I am incredibly cheap and I am incredibly stubborn And so when I decide I'm gonna take this tree out. I didn't call a service I didn't decide to get some kind of special tool from the store I just said you know what I have a hatchet I have a saw and I have a shovel this will get done today in a few hours And several hours later, I was learning a really good lesson about just how hard this tree was going to be taking out because I had not accounted for how deep the roots went on that tree and how even so with the roots that they went underneath the retaining wall that was next to it as well. So it was just a fun several hours of my back on fire and my pride just broken down by that point. And so after several hours of negotiations, I got the tree out of there and I learned a lesson. I learned humility, and I learned that roots go deep. Now, why do I tell you that? Because today, brothers and sisters, we are going to hear the words of King Jesus, challenge us on something that is deeply rooted in our hearts and in our minds. He is going to challenge our desires and our motivations to defend our self. Now, when I say self, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about your physical body. I'm talking about something deeper. I'm talking about that inner self of us who we are, what we're after in this world, what motivates and drives us. That's what King Jesus is going to challenge for us this morning. And we're going to find that those roots go very, very deep. And so with that in mind, would you join me in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Here's what the Lord says. You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Speaking about this passage said this, that nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian culture more counter and more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. In this passage, we feel the highest cost of this sermon because it pulls so counter to how we find our flesh and our sensibilities for us. You know, if you've been walking with us in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, I tell my college kids at Blend this, that the Sermon on the Mount is like an inaugural statement from Jesus coming into this world and saying, I am king, and here's what my kingdom looks like, and my kingdom is counter to the world you see around you. And so there will be times in the Sermon on the Mount where you see things that look to us like weakness, but Jesus calls them strengths you will see things in the Sermon on the Mount that seem to us to be sensible, but yet Jesus calls them sin. It's a counter culture that he is establishing. And in this passage, Jesus calls out and calls us to control what feels instinctual, to corral what we understand to be innate inside of us. Now, I wanna tell you this morning, this calling is more freeing than you could ever imagine for your life, but it will come at a tremendous cost. To how we normally live if I had to summarize for us this morning at the outset of what this is all about I would say that Jesus calls us to self-denial a self-denial that refuses to seek revenge even when we suffer evil or inconvenience from others now my plan this morning if you've had me in a Bible study you know the pace that I like to go at And so we're gonna try to work through this one. We're gonna spend most of our time today in verses 38 and 39 to find the principle of what Jesus is talking about because it's so important that we get that part right. And then we'll spend a little bit of time looking at the four scenarios he gives. And then finally, I'm gonna give you a few diagnostic questions so you can know, how am I doing with all this? So with that in mind, let's jump in to the word this morning. We begin in the verse 38 when Jesus uses that familiar formula of talking about you have heard that it was said. And he goes on to say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, just in case you haven't walked in this morning fully briefed on Old Testament law, don't worry, I did the work for you this morning. You see, Jesus in this part is referencing several sections in the Pentateuch. He's referencing Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. And what's important to know is that in all three of those sections of the law, what's being taught is called a civil law. I want you to hold on to that word for a second. Civil law. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you read through the Old Testament law, you will find plenty of laws to look at, but they're not quite the same. Some laws we call moral laws. And some laws we call civil laws. Now, a moral law is a law that we should all follow. For instance, the Ten Commandments is a great example of this. We should all in this room agree that murder and stealing is probably not something we should participate in, right? Right? I'm getting worried about y'all for not amen me. These These are things that we all agree on are good things for us. Now, the second category, civil law, is something that is a little more directed at how we govern people. There are scenarios given in the Old Testament to help us determine the best course of action for judges and rulers to take. And we saw this same concept a few weeks back when Pastor Marcus talked about divorce, didn't we? That we looked in the Old Testament and we saw scenarios of what should happen for us in the process of a divorce. Well, in the same sense right now, when Jesus is talking about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's a scenario. They have these stories in the Old Testament that says, suppose this thing happens, well, what do you do in response to that? And that's where this law comes from. And so it's a concept used to govern people. It's a concept used when we say eye for an eye to be a standard by which we judge how we should be ruled and administered. We kind of the best course of action for us. You know, when we're talking about this concept, we're talking about what is fair in judgment. If you suffer a loss, what is a fair compensation for that loss, an equal compensation? And what it was seeking to counteract was retaliation. Because we know that when a wrong is suffered to us, we're not always very concerned about just kind of getting back what was lost to us. Sometimes we're concerned for a little bit more, aren't we? Let me tell you a story as old as time from the very first part of Genesis of Cain and Abel. You probably know the story. I just want to give you the simple beats. Cain and Abel are asked to bring a sacrifice before the Lord. And Abel prepares a succulent lamb for the Lord. Probably a nice medium cooked lamb. Perfect. Probably has some nice herbs and spices around it. And Cain brings a fruit basket to the Lord. Not quite the same thing, not quite the same aroma. And for whatever reason, the Lord approves of Abel's offering, and it upsets Cain, doesn't it? And so Cain, in his anger, decides that the only next logical step in the escalation of retaliation is to kill this guy because he beat me out in an offering. Now, again, just to cover because you guys are concerning me, Whenever murder is your answer for the next step in retaliation, that's the wrong answer. That's what he did. Because, again, we don't want just to get what's fair. We want revenge. We want to get over on the person who wronged us, don't we? And so God in his justice gives the people of Israel a law that says when we seek justice when there is a wrong committed, not revenge. And it was designed in such a way to have a neutral third party, a judge, be that deciding voice in that matter. Because we're not very partial, are we, when it comes to how we decide revenge? And so we fast forward back into Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is speaking into a culture that has taken a good and just law and they have perverted it for their own pleasures. Jesus sees a crowd of people who have taken this civil law and sought to use it for personal retribution means. Now, just to be clear, people were not going around gouging out eyes and punching each other in the teeth all the time. No, what more likely happened is that if there was a damage done to one person, there was a fine that the other person imposed as payback. Think about it today in modern courts when we sue for damages, right? Very same concept. And so the problem was that people were taking the law into their own hands. They were being vigilantes like Batman. And they felt that instead of going through the proper legal channels and having that unbiased third party to kind of decide what was fair, they were going to forcibly enact payment from that person who had wronged them. And this was not what God intended. But sisters, you just hear a principle from me right now, personal relationships are never meant to be based on legal justice. meant to be based on love and care. When we devolve relationships into competitions and rivalries, we reject the Imago Dei in another person. We view people not as image bearers of God, but as obstacles to overcome. Not worthy of dignity, but as enemies to dominate. Brothers and sisters, it should not be this way, and yet so often it is, isn't it? And so Jesus, in verse 39, he flips as he often does the entire conversation when he says this. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. Now this statement has often been misunderstood truly in some tragic ways throughout history. Let me give you one example, famously. A 19th century Russian writer and thinker Leo Tolstoy, he interpreted this commandment in this way. You'll see it on the screen here said, so the first point that struck me when I understood this commandment, do not resist evil and its true meaning, was that human courts were not only contrary to this commandment, but in direct opposition to the whole doctrine of Christ, and that therefore he must certainly have forbidden them. He goes on to say, Christ says, do not resist evil, and the sole object of court of law is to resist evil. And so Christ enjoins us to return good for evil, and yet courts of law return evil for evil. Now, you may read that and be shaken by that, but let me just give you a little bit of commentary here. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous pastor, said this, When your interpretation of Scripture sounds ridiculous, it's probably not right. Jesus is not advocating for the abolishment of laws and government or for us to fall into a system of anarchy this morning. In fact, Jesus and several of the New Testament writers are pro-government throughout scripture. They encourage us to pay taxes and to respect those whom God has put in positions of authority, knowing that God is ultimately the one that puts them there. And so this command is not a call to anarchy. And it's also not a call to turn away from dealing with legitimate injustice and evil in this world. Amen. You know, this last week we saw injustice and evil in this world here in our own state. And this teaching of Jesus is not a call for us just to kind of push that under the rug. Amen. He's not calling us to anarchy, he's not even calling us to pacifism in this verse and he's not calling us to weakness either Jesus is not calling us to be a people who let the evil intentions of others just abuse us throughout our entire life Charles Spurgeon that famous English pastor said it this way we are to be the anvil when bad men are the hammers and so yes the anvil is struck by the hammer but the anvil does not move when it is struck It stays in place, why? Because it's strong. strong. It depicts in our mind a strong man or woman who controls themselves with love for other people that is so powerful that they even reject the notion of retaliation when they're wronged. That's what a strong man does. That's what a strong woman does. It is those who have been made strong by the work of the Holy Spirit that can withstand the strikes of evil men and women in this world. Because ultimately Jesus is not commenting on policies of nations. He is teaching on the practices of individual hearts in this passage. It is a call to reject the desire for personal revenge and instead to engage with those who do evil to us with a posture of love and forgiveness even when they personally wrong us. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, I really believe kind of fleshes out more of what Jesus is saying in this verse. He says this. says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, I I love this imagery, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul and Jesus are calling us to is that when we are affronted by somebody, when someone does evil to us, our response is not to look for ways to pay them back with evil or to get back over on them, but rather it's to bring good into a situation through showing honor and forsaking vengeance, therefore overcoming the evil with good. That's how you shut down cycles of sin. You know, this passage is ultimately about self denial. It's about denial to the core of our instincts because we all have that nature in us, right, to want to get back. But what Jesus is calling us to, when you are a person of the Beatitudes, when you are secure in me, you are strong enough to resist even those urges to want to retaliate. And so we look at the four scenarios in this text, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time for sake of our time going through them all. I just want to kind of pull out that principle in each of them. We see an example of how to respond when a person seeks to publicly embarrass or shame you. If you don't believe a slap on the face is shameful, ask Chris Rock. Some of y'all got that. Or when a person seeks to take your rights, like taking your tunic, he says, go to the point of even giving up your cloak or when the state puts unfair demands on us and finally when a person seeks to ask you for personal possessions what do you do how do you deny self in those moments in all four scenarios jesus characters cultural expectations it says when a person slaps you he calls you to offer up the other cheek willing to endure further public shame when a person looks to sue us, we are willing to give up even more than is has required us, even to the point of things we're entitled to. He says, when the state places demands on us that we do not like, instead of complaining, we serve above and beyond the call. And when someone comes to ask for money, instead of grasping our purse strings, we give generously to those in need. And with these actions, we prove to be a transformed people by the power of the gospel. I I was recently at graduation from my seminary, and my uh, president of my seminary, Dr. Greenway, has this thing he says very often. He says this. says, the only thing that proves that a southwestern degree actually works is you. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you this right now. The only way that the world knows the power of the gospel is real is through you how we respond in situations like these. See, when we refuse to retaliate, we show that we are secure in our identity found in Christ, so that no insult can falter the value we receive from him. When we are asked to give up things we are entitled to, we give generously and cheerfully because when we do that we reflect our Lord who as Philippians 2 says had equality with God but he didn't consider it something to be held on to Amen. rather he emptied himself to the point of the cross and when we obey the commands of the states not with begrudging hearts but with the willingness to serve we reflect the truth that it is the Lord who appoints all governing officials even the ones we don't like right And we're doing that, we honor the Lord's sovereignty. And when we provide for a beggar, we show, as D.A. Carson says, that Christ will not tolerate a mercenary, tight-fisted, penny-pinching attitude. I love that. We show that our primary concern is never what is in it for me, but rather how can I be a blessing to others. Sinclair Ferguson summarized it so well. So let the insults come, says Jesus, and show by your response that you feel no need for retaliation because you have your reputation secure with God as his child. Let your response to insult be gracious, just as your father's response to your insult of sin against him has been so gracious. Will anyone be won for the kingdom by your retaliation, by your standing on your rights? How could they be when the king in the kingdom is the one who did not retaliate? Now, I just want to give a few disclaimers because I feel some tenseness in the room by saying these things. The principle that Jesus is calling us to this morning does not mean that we practice putting ourselves in unnecessary places of abuse or harm. What Jesus is talking about is not physical abuse to your person. He is talking about insults to your pride. Jesus is not calling us to forget justice, as I said earlier. To the contrary, Christians should be acutely focused on justice in all things. And it is not a call to forsake participating in politics and seeking to vote for people who align with our values. Those are good things, bless the Lord. It's not a call to not be wise with how we do don't donate our money. What it is a call to is to not hold on to the building up of ourselves more than we hold on to the building up of Christ's kingdom. It is a call to deny our desire to always try to win in the end because Christ is already. It is a call to forsake upholding your rights at the expense of compassionate love for all people, even the unlovable. and It is a call to follow where the Lord has already led so well. That he denied himself, even to deny himself to the point of the cross. Which is exactly what he tells us to do in Luke 9.23 if we're going to be followers of him. So what the Lord is calling us to this morning is full on denial of self for the sake of love and unity with those around us, even those who seek to do evil to us. This is not an easy calling. In fact, it is an impossible calling to do in yourself. I wanna give you a few metrics this morning. We're gonna put these on the screen. They're gonna be up there for the remainder of our time this morning of how to gauge ourselves on this calling. I think it's helpful, I was talking with KCC the other day, and he used this analogy of saying that, in life, or when you're driving a car, you have gauges on the vehicle, right, telling you how things are going for you. Well, in life, we need gauges, too, to see how we're doing. And so this morning, I have three questions for you that I pray if you don't already write them down, or if not, take a picture with your phone, I don't care, but somehow put these to memory for yourself for the next week. The next question is this, Notice your moments of self-defensiveness, annoyance and grievance. Ask a question like this, why does this upset me? Is it about injustice or is it about me? Second question, consider how much the actions in your week are motivated by the promotion of self. Why do we say what we do? Why do we wear what we wear? post what we do, or even think what we do. Who are we trying to promote? Final question for us. Reflect on this last week's miseries and heartaches, and I'm sure you've had at least some. Were they promoted by injustice, like the situation in Uvalde? Or were they frustrations of self? I didn't get my way. Things didn't go how I planned them to go. Life's not fair to me. By using these three questions, I I truly believe that we can see just how far the roots of pride and the protection of self truly go in our own hearts. You wanna know how I know so well? Because this has been beating me up for three weeks. And I've been chopping at roots, and every single time I chop at one root, it seems like five more roots pop up. They go down deep in our hearts. But we do the work of removing these roots, not by trying to just be better people. That's religion and that's false and we hate that garbage here. We do it through the work of repentance. We do it by being people of the Beatitudes who as Jesus said, if you forgot, are poor in spirit, are those who mourn, are those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, and who are peacemakers, and look at the tie-in here, who are blessed when we're persecuted for righteousness. That is how we remove the roots of pride, the roots of protection of self, and how we walk into a kingdom that is counter to this world but will never fade fade. and is worth you being in. I'm going to call your time to a time of reflection right now. And again, we're going to leave those questions on the screen there. My challenge for you in these next few moments, if you never know what to do during a time of reflection, I'm going to give you something to do. Ask yourself those questions ask yourself, Lord, where am I on this scale right now? Where am I walking this past week? And as you find yourself saying, man, that's me. Man, I'm still working with that. Would, would you just turn back to the very first part of Matthew chapter 5 and read those Beatitudes one more time and find out how exactly we chop those roots out? As I told you this morning, this is a more freeing call than you could ever imagine. I truly believe if you could do this, to use a phrase, you will be invincible. But it comes at a price. So would you with me this morning count the cost?